0: So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy The Politics of Everything. Welcome to The Politics of Everything. Today I am chatting to Jen Brown. We're discussing the politics of fear, one of our biggest emotional drivers. Jen is actually a trail running and triathlon coach and she hosts the Sparta Chicks Radio podcast and has a business of the same name. Sparta Chicks is a coaching business that supports women who participate in endurance sports and outdoor adventures. She helps them tap into their inner strength and chase their dreams with confidence. Jen's actually a former corporate lawyer, so she's really done two sides of the coin, if you like, the corporate life and obviously now the personal training and coaching business. She really is focused on helping women achieve their personal best In their sporting goals. She's also an author and a speaker. In her spare time, Jen can be found drinking coffee or exploring her beloved trails through the World Heritage listed areas of the Blue Mountains, which are just west of Sydney. Welcome to the podcast, Jen. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to get into this. I mean, I guess for many of us, we either embrace fear or literally run away from it. What role has fear played in your life?
1: This is oh, this is such a tough question for me, and as much as I hate to admit it, fear has been critically important in the development of who I am as a person and and what I've achieved over the years. I I hate I hate the experience of fear. Nobody likes feeling afraid, and I hate that it's caused me to doubt and second guess myself. Or feel insecure about decisions, or even paralyzed me from taking action at, from time to time. but at the same time, all of my greatest achievements, the things I am most proud of in life, have always been on the other side of fear I've had to go I've had to go through that experience of feeling afraid and learning how to manage that fear to achieve it so I, I, I hate to admit it, but it has really been um, critically important in my journey so far.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you tap into something we all of us can probably relate to whether you're a child or an adult or where you are in your life, that sometimes having to face your fear and then make decisions around that. You know, they can often lead to something even better. Do you have some tangible examples, or one big example that comes to mind that shows, you know, I guess the power of fear for good? It's
1: a good question. In my own life, there's been lots of things, like calling off engagement, um, making the- yeah, that is a big one, <laughs> making the decision to leave law, massive, massive yes. decision for me. Um, I am quite conservative. Uh, risk averse by nature. So that was a massive one to leave that that security blanket and that paycheck behind. And even my podcast, for me, that was something I was paralyzed by fear from taking action on for Well, I talked about it publicly for 12 months before I did it, and I was probably thinking about it for for two years before I actually took the plunge. So there have been three things just I can think of off the top of my head that that were real massive sources of fear for me, but three decisions that have made a huge shift for the better in my life. Absolutely. So if we step back a
0: bit into when you were a lawyer, what initially attracted you to the law?
1: (laughs) Uh, honestly, probably watching far too much L.A. Law as a kid on TV. Oh, that's going to date you. There's a, <laughs> a whole
0: bunch of people out there who are going, L.A. Law. For, for those of you who don't know, that was a big show in the 80s. And, um, yes, we all watched it and thought yeah, that looked awesome.
1: Yeah, I'm forty. Uh, I'm forty 42. I was going to say I'm 41. No, I am 42 now. So that, there you go. I'll put that out there. Um, honestly... It's funny, I, I remember wanting to be a lawyer since the time I was sort of thir- uh, 14, 15, 16, and I don't remember why other than LA Law, but I do remember thinking it seems like the hardest thing I could possibly think to do, which I would never recommend for anyone as, as a way to make a decision about your choice of career or path in life, um, and I have no idea why why that that was a driving force or what drove me to, to choose, to do something that I thought was so hard. And, but I, but it turned out well, I mean, I was in the, I have left the law now, but I was in it for 13 years and I did, I did love it. So it wasn't a bad decision in the end.
0: A lot of see it was part of your journey. I mean, I guess, what did it teach you working in an environment? I mean, from the outside law often looks, yes, it is very intellectually challenging. It sounds like it's, sometimes demanding in terms of your personal life too and the hours you're expected to do if you want to climb that ladder. I mean, what did it teach you about discipline and perhaps a little bit about fear as well?
1: Discipline was a massive one and it's it's interesting. It's still something that plays on my mind today. So if I'm working from home and I pack up my desk at 6 six or 6.30, there's still this little part of my brain that goes, you should still be working. If you were still back in lawyer days, you would still be on this, in the office still working Um, I don't think anyone could really get through law at university or start or stay in the legal career that long without having, being a naturally disciplined person. Um, It's certainly not a profession that you can get through doing the minimum amount of work. No, it doesn't seem like that at all. It just seems like there's a lot of reading, there's a lot of preparation. Um, Which part of the law
0: were you working in as well?
1: I started initially I spent 1 year as in commercial litigation and absolutely freaking hated it and then I moved across to corporate law so from that point on it was it was all about um the the management um of organizations purchase and sale of businesses um shareholder arrangements all sorts of fun stuff I used to tease my my friends who are in litigation by saying that I was the person who put deals together and they were the people who pulled deals apart. So that's such a great analogy
0: and I guess um that's often how we see it with law- lawyers it's one side or the other and um just tapping into sort of your decision t- to leave. I mean were you were you doing trail running and triathlons while you were a lawyer? How did you really get into that
1: space? So, I, yes, I was. I started running somewhere around 2004, I think. I, I was very active through university, started working as a lawyer, and all that went out the window, gained weight, you know, working stupid hours, boozy lunches, the whole thing. Um, and so I went back to the gym, and then a couple years later, so 2004, I started running as a way to lose a bit of extra weight, as a way for, for extra stress relief. And then uh, I was living in Mossman at the time, and one day I saw this little trail headed down the, the side of a house, and I thought, I wonder where that goes. And I ran down there, and I was instantly hooked. Like I knew in that moment I was meant to be a trail runner. I can't, I can't explain it. That's incredible. I get goosebumps just hearing you describe that. And so did you
0: do some training? How did you get ready for your first competitive run?
1: It just slowly, well, not so slowly built up. I made the classic beginner mistake of doing too much too soon and so was constantly, constantly injured. Um, I became a morning exercise person, which I could never have imagined in my life doing. Um, So I used to get up in the morning and go for a run down around Bradley's Head and Balmoral and Mossman and, um, you know, it just became a source of uh, space and clarity and calm for me it was a it was a way to put a pause in a in a very busy existence and I've always found that that being on the trails gives me it gives me energy I come back tired but at the same time I come back energized that makes sense I and mean, I think
0: sometimes we talk about you know not all of us may have done such competitive or long distance training but you know that runner's high I mean I definitely have experienced that and the you are physically tired but you also feel amazing it's hard to describe and
1: it is addictive it it is absolutely it is absolutely addictive the best way I can describe it is I was in uh, Nepal um, on a trip once and I was in a bookshop in Nepal of all places and I opened up this book that had some stunning pictures of um, the Himalayas and there was a quote by a 17th century Chinese poet whose name escapes me at the moment and the quote was the body roams the mountains and the soul is set free. Mm, That's definitely
0: um, something I think most of us seek particularly if we live busy modern 24-hour connected lives and I guess if you go back into the idea of the element of fear I mean what are some of the fears you had to overcome when you became serious about the trail running side of of what you wanted to achieve?
1: Oh God! Everything, everything, everything—from the internal fear of judgment. Um, what will people think? I'm, I'm not a runner. Um, I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. I'll never be fast. All that sort of internal stories that we tell ourselves. Um, but then also the external things. So going out into the bush or into the mountains. Um, there are external factors to consider such as, um, accidents, snakes, you know, people with malicious intent, um, all those sorts of things that, that are often, you know, we, they're factors that we include, they're factors we take into account when you, you know, you make the decision to go out into the bush. Yes, exactly. I mean, I guess it's not
0: sort of like being in a sterile gym environment where it's all controlled and air conditioned and, um. You know, for the, if you want to go get a drink of water, you go get a drink of water, or you want something to eat or a coffee, you just, you know, there's usually a cafe and it's, mm-hmm. um, it's a very different experience. So with your decision to leave the law for good, mm-hmm. did you then go straight into
1: running a personal training business? I did. I actually, um, I started, st- I actually overlapped the two, which was even crazier in hindsight. So I started studying personal training while I was still working as a lawyer. I did the course by distance and it took me 18 months at the time. And at the time, you know, it's a course that you can do in five or six weeks full time, but it took me 18 months to do all the study. And then I started um, training some friends after hours who were very accommodating of my wayward hours and on the weekends built up a business. And then I was lucky enough, I had the opportunity to go part time. As a lawyer, so I switched down to part-time hours, and then was able to build the business up, and then eventually um, set a set an exit date from the law. And despite my employer at the time throwing more money and longer contracts at me, um, I finally had to make the decision to walk away from the law, um, and then shifted into full-time personal training. And how long ago was that? Uh, I wa- I left the law in July 2012. Five okay, years.
0: Okay, so some time ago. Oh, 20,
1: 2011, sorry, 2011. Okay, so we're
0: talking sort of, you know, five, six years ago. Yeah. So with that decision, you know, you leave something where there's probably guaranteed income and then you start a business. few of us have been there. Mm-hmm. One tap doesn't just turn on when you turn the other one off. So did you have enough clients in the beginning? How did you really, I guess, embrace the fear of being an entrepreneur?
1: Oh, I'm still not sure I have embraced it, to be honest. Um uh, I, so I had a part-time personal training business at the time. I had, I had funds, um, some savings. I can't remember, you know, six months of operating costs, that sort of, or living costs, that sort of thing. Um, a very supportive husband. And I think to I've always had a sense that I will land on my feet. That's interesting. So even though we are obviously unpacking
0: ideas around fear and you've discussed some of your own personal experiences with fear there's also this inner sense of belief for the sounds of it
1: yeah I mean I was raised my parents always told me there was you know I could do anything I set my mind to and so I think I've I don't and I don't know whether it is inherently because of their their support over the years I do think you know trail running mountaineering, all that sort of stuff, builds that body of evidence or knowledge of, of the situations, the prior situations you've been in that you've managed to get yourself out of. So I think I've, I've probably always had that sense of I will land on my feet um, and I can I can basically survive pretty much anything life throws at me. So I am still paralyzed by fear at times, but it's sort of coupled or or the way I get through it is to is to pull on that sort of sense of I'll land on my feet and everything will be <laughs> everything will be fine, and uh, this is really important to me, so I need to pursue this thing. Absolutely,
0: and I guess that puts you in a great position to with Sparta chicks, the women you work with, who might come to you at various, you know, I guess physical and mental limitations they think they have, but they have big goals. I imagine um, many of which, you know, some of us can't even picture getting ready for a massive trail run or doing any of the sort of stuff I've seen you achieve. So, I mean, at the end of the day, do you really think anyone can say run a marathon?
1: Yes. Yes, I do. Not 99.9999% of people could. I think there are two big challenges when it comes to running and marathons in particular. And the first is that the majority of people were, weren't very good at sports as kids or didn't enjoy sports as a child or have horror memories of school, you know, swimming carnivals or sports carnivals. And so they've carried this story of themselves throughout their life that they're not very sporty, they're not good at sports, they're not a runner, they've never been a runner, they'll never be a runner. Um, So this perception of who they are or aren't, has has carried they've carried it through their lives and it's shaped all the decisions they've made. Um, I have lost count of the number of times women have told me that they're not very sporty, um, and that yes. sometimes includes women who have finished marathons. So somehow, Isn't that interesting? even if they've had the experience of obviously
0: success, if you like, mm-hmm. in that realm, they would still say, oh, "Oh, it's sort of maybe I can't do this again, or I can't do it, you know, better."
1: Yeah or i'm I'm not a runner, um even though I've finished eight City to surfs because I think you know thinking back to when I started running i did I called myself a jogger for the, probably the first six months because in my head, when I said runner in my head, the imagery I had was like a six foot tall African man. Uh, in those horrendous side split shorts, running a marathon at the Olympic Games at a pace like a Usain
0: Hussein Bolt
1: or yeah, someone at, like at that. At a pace I can't even sustain to, you know, get across the road to avoid getting hit by a bus. So in my head, I had that perception of that is a runner, and because I don't fit that mold or I can't do that, therefore I'm not a runner. And so this narrative, this story we have about what we can and we can't do, we, you know, we carry that sort of air quotes, baggage through our lives and so we aren't even open to the idea of being able to run a marathon.
0: So when you work with with women, obviously everyone's different and, you know, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I mean, what are some of the ways in which you work through, I guess, the mental and the physical barriers that people might perceive are there for them?
1: Physical Physical stuff is actually the easiest. <laughs> it is so much easier to do. And the mental stuff is what holds all of us back. The physical side is actually easy to develop and I, I just think there's some basic mistakes a lot of people make that that sabotage themselves. So can you give us an example? It
0: would be great to hear what would be sort of the number one thing that you hear as the self-sabotaging talk, if you like.
1: Uh, self From the self-sabotaging talk, it tends to be I'll, I'll never be a runner or I'll never be very good at running. And the other one I hear quite a lot is not, I am not good enough, I'm not ready, I don't belong or I don't fit in in this world. Um, And so people say no to races. They say no to, you know, a group of friends is going out for a training run and they say, oh, I'm too, you know, I'm not ready, I'm not good enough, I don't fit in, I'll say no to this opportunity.
0: Right. And I guess for you, you've got to encourage them to say yes, otherwise they might never give it a go.
1: Exactly. Um, so giving people permission to do, giving people permission to do what they want to do is actually a large part of my job. And it's almost, I need to give them permission before they'll trust themselves enough to give themselves permission in a strange sort of way.
0: No, that does make sense. Often we are looking for validation and I suppose your own experience and and your own vulnerabilities, if you can sort of, you know, tap into that in yourself and remember what that's like, then that must also create a little bit of a community feel for them as well. But that's not like, I haven't been where you've been, I've walked in your shoes in a similar way. And look, this is what you can achieve.
1: Absolutely. I often have... People often accuse me of reading their minds or reading their diaries, neither of which which I can do, unfortunately. Um, But it is because it's a shared experience. We all have that experience of feeling that we're not ready, that we're not good enough, that we don't belong. And that is both from sports perspective, relationships, work. It's a common fear that humans have across the board um and so it is it is a common experience we all share but often we don't talk about it because we don't we we don't want to share that vulnerability with others and so it's very easy to feel isolated and alone as though you're the only person who feels that way so when you can come along and whether that's it with our guests on the podcast or even just a private conversation with someone when when I'm able to share my story or the stories of other people, Um, I think opening that door and letting people know that it's really common and normal to feel what you're feeling. Here are some strategies to help and now go off and do it. Here's your permission slip. Go Go and do it. Yeah. Okay. So sort of um, bringing it back into
0: the topic of fear, I mean, what's your sense of how fear and i guess success can coexist it sounds like even though you've had some success and you are accomplished in what you're doing with the trail running and and your business there is still those niggling fears i mean how does that how does that play out for you how do you manage it
1: there are there are always niggling fears i don't think anyone ever is completely fearless um, and if they say they are, they're kidding themselves, really. Um, I think there's two things. I think you cannot experience success without fear. I think fear is that element that that pushes you beyond the comfort zone, beyond the things you're doing what are comfortable to try new things, to do things differently. Um, but at the same time, you can absolutely feel fear and not have success. When you, uh, when you listen to the fear more than you listen to to the goals or the dreams that you have so even just priority being cognizant of the need to prioritize your your fears versus what you want to achieve is one of the biggest strategies because so often I think we just listen to our fears our fears are so loud in our heads they are and often if we even when we've had success you know
0: a lot of entrepreneurs that I've worked with in my business and some of them are phenomenally successful. However you define success, it could be monetarily or they've won lots of awards. They still have that imposter syndrome. They still feel like they're going to be found out even if they've got all the accolades in the world. So I think what you're saying is, is very relevant to all of us.
1: Mm. I think imposter syndrome or imposter complex is one of the most commonly shared experiences we have and the least talked about in a very open way. We did a, a podcast interview with Tanya Geisler, who is a leadership expert, primarily focused in women in the imposter complex. Um, she's a coach I'm working with at the moment as I deal with, you know, my imposter imposter stuff as well. Um, that episode, I've had people tell me it made them cry. I've had people tell me it made their hairs on the back of their neck stand up. I've had people tell me they had to turn it off because it was hitting too close to home. Um, so I think getting these conversations, having these conversations about the realities of fear, is really important. Um, even between friends, you know, we're quite often honest with our closest friends, but we, you know, we don't hop on Facebook and tell the world our fears. And then realizing that what you're experiencing is is really normal, but making sure that you have the strategies in place. To move past them.
0: Absolutely. And I think if you can move past it, obviously, then you get to that greater place as well. And I guess in your life, I mean, I never think anyone's done whatever they've done on their own. Are there any mentors or inspirational figures, even if you you know can't name them or don't wish to name them, that you draw your inspiration from? I mean, if so, sort of what have they taught you about business and life?
1: I don't have any direct mentors. I have a lot of friends who Women, I women, primarily women. I am lucky enough to call my friends who I am inspired by. I watch and I learn from beyond my inner circle. Women like Amelia Earhart. If I could have anyone on the podcast, I would want to talk to Amelia Earhart because, except that she's dead. but Yes. <laughs> well, mere
0: detail, but um, yeah, just minor detail. Bring her back. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. So that pioneering spirit is something which. Clearly motivates you and inspires you in
1: others. Absolutely. And it was not just pioneering spirit, but I had pioneering spirit, but you know, to do what she did and what she attempted to do in her industry, in her time when society would have been screaming at her to, to play the traditional role. Even women like Serena Williams, her strength, her sass, and her ability to stand and acknowledge her strength and her greatness very publicly is something most women find very difficult, if not impossible to do. And I wish more of us would be able to stand there and say, yes, this is what I've done. Um, I'm really proud of it without, without deflecting, without, um, uh, feeling the need to downplay our achievements even when you were talking earlier you were reading my bio there's a little part of me that felt that feeling of wanting to downplay my achievements
0: uh, yeah I think that's true and I think often you look back on something and you, like you say particularly if someone else is sharing that story about it, you think that's is that me Can that, have I really done all that mm. and and even we're often really reluctant to um Celebrate our success, and maybe it's a very much an Australian mindset that tall poppy syndrome, too. Where we don't really want to stand out in a way, even if we've done amazing things and we know that others can benefit from it. I, I do feel a sense of everyone kind of wants to just sort of, you know, be a bit more of a shrinking violet, which, you know, who wants to really do that? But, you know, there is a sense of us not wanting to show off, if you like.
1: Yeah. And I think, too, there's that's, I don't know if it's just an Australian thing so much as a human DNA conditioning thing. You know, we have been conditioned for generations and generations to fit in, to conform. Um, The people who stood out were the people who ended up being the outcasts. Um, And so we're probably fighting a combination of of evolution, human development, society conditioning, you know, even the things we've been raised by our our parents and our family members. Um, we're we're fighting we're fighting against a lot of conditioning there, but um it's really important to to stand there and say, Look, yeah, I did that and I'm really proud of that.
0: It does remind me of that quote and I can't remember who said it, you know, well behaved women really make history yeah. and I often think of that mm. as, you know, not everyone's obviously going to be remembered by name, but even in your in your sphere, in your own circle of of people who matter to you, if you can do things which, I guess, have a legacy impact um, and are moments that you can be proud of, that's really what life has to be about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to wrap up. So if you could just close off by sharing, I guess, some big picture ideas, maybe two or three tips for listeners who are trying to perhaps Battle their own uh, politics of fear, what would they be? What would be sort of some mantras or ideas which you would love to leave as your legacy for this particular episode of The Politics of Everything?
1: I would say one would be to think of your fears as stories you tell yourself. Because I and think. And by that, you mean when, they're not true? Well, they may not be true. And that's the thing, quite often we think of our fears as fact. As, uh, as things we cannot do. We tell ourselves these stories about what we can and we can't do. We take them as fact. We don't question them and we assume that there's nothing we can do to change them. But when you start to look at them as um, stories or fairy tales, I think at a subconscious level, it sort of opens the door and it gives you more room to question them, to Understand them to understand what's underlying them, and to one of the biggest things I've had women do with success is look for evidence of things that prove your fears or your stories are wrong. So, if your story is you're not very good at business, um, look for examples of times in your life that prove that story is not wrong. So, it might be the clients you've helped, um, the awards you've won, you know, the 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 books you've written, whatever it is. If your story is that you're, you're not meant to be a runner or you'll never be a runner, look for all those times that you know you did run. Whether It doesn't matter whether it's 100 metres or 100 kilometres. Um, there are always times in your life that prove your stories and your fears are wrong. So really challenge yourself to examine those fear stories you're telling yourself.
0: I think that's a fantastic um, piece of advice and we really have valued having you on the podcast everyone if you want to contact jen brown there will be some details of her podcast and website on our show notes you've been listening to the politics of everything i'm Amber Danes, and until next time keep well thanks for listening today if you've enjoyed the politics of everything we thrive on feedback so please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.